I was thinking about how to introduce our text for this morning and introduce the topic for this morning. Uh, Here's the, the conclusion that I came to that I should ask you, what is the most foolish decision that you've ever made? And then what is the most wise decision that you have made in your lifetime? If I was just talking to college students at Christian Challenge on Thursday evening, I would encourage you to find someone that you don't already know and then share your most foolish decision with them. They would do it because I would tell them to, but I will save you, I will have grace on you. You don't need to find a stranger and then share your most foolish decision because you're grown-ups, you don't need to trust me, you won't do what I tell you to do. Uh, But college students would do it. They would share their most foolish decisions with each other. But I want you to be thinking about what is a foolish decision that you have made and what is a wise decision that you've made in life. Um, This morning, we're looking at a text of Scripture where uh, the Apostle Paul, in writing in Ephesians, gives a a list of of marks uh, of wisdom that I want to lay out for you. And here are these marks of wisdom. A heart surrendered to wisdom look like this. I think Paul says these for us. Our time, if we are wise, will be urgently surrendered to God. We will seek the Lord's will. We'll be surrendered to the Holy Spirit. We will live lives of worship. We'll have an attitude of thanksgiving, and that's timely. We'll submit to godly mentors. And I want us to, to walk through, show you those in the passage and see how Paul puts this into very practical application for us. So I want us to be able to leave this morning with a few questions that we're trying to answer about how to put this practical instruction and wisdom into our lives. So the first thing we'll do this morning after I read the text, we'll look at the context of what's going on in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and then we'll look at these one by one and see how Paul's laying out. This is what a heart surrendered to wisdom looks like. So let's look in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read... Uh, chapter 5, verses 15 through 21 in Ephesians chapter 5. And here's what our text for this morning says, starting in verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. A couple of um, additional um, translations that I want to share with you. I love looking at God's word and looking at how uh, various translators have have, uh, put the text into English for us. Uh, I love Ephesians 5.15 in the old King James Version. It says this, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Uh, An older translation, not used very much anymore, that I kind of like to go back to is the Phillips uh, paraphrase. Here's how the Phillips paraphrase uh, translates this. Make the best use of your time despite all the difficulties of these days. Don't be vague, but firmly grasp what you know to be the will of God. Don't get your stimulus from wine, for there's always danger of excessive drinking, but let the Spirit 
stimulate your soul. And then the, the message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson puts it this way, watch your step, use your head, make the most of every chance that you get, for these are desperate times. Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the master wants. Don't drink too much wine that cheapens your life, but drink the spirit of God, huge drafts of him. Here's what Paul is getting at in the context of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians, here's a trick. You can look like a Bible scholar if you want to take this to your next Bible study. Ephesians is really helpful. Paul sets up the book of Ephesians in that chapters 1, 2, and 3 are like a a theological foundation. And and in chapters 1 through 3, he lays the foundation. Then in 4, 5, and 6, Paul gets really practical. And there's actually a transition in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, walk. And he shares a bunch of verbs about practical action. But 1, 2, and 3, Paul lays out for this church, this uh, church in the city of Ephesus. He says, here's what you used to be. You used to be dead in sin, but your new position as a follower of Jesus is one who has been raised from death to new life. And that's a phrase that we use during baptism, that we remember you have died to the old way, but now you have a new position as one who's not that you were bad and now you were good. You were dead, and now because of Jesus, you are alive. And so he lays out in chapters one through three, here's your new position. You are one who has new life. Because of that new life, Paul says, now let's get practical. And in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul uses this language from chapter 4 to the end, the language of action. Here's some of the phrases that he uses in 4, 5, and 6. He says, live life worthy of the calling. He says, make every effort to do this. He says, walk in the light, walk in wisdom, walk in the spirit. He says, put off your old self. He says, follow God's example. And he says, live as children of light. Do you catch the the action, language, the verbs that Paul uses that stand out in 4, 5, and 6? It's um, effort, walk, uh, get rid, put off the old, follow God's example. There's a language of of action. And so this morning, I want us to look at some of this action. In uh, the next section that comes after this passage, Paul's about to, after he lays out this language of wisdom, Paul's about to say, now that you have the wisdom, now that you have this new position as one who's living in Jesus, here's how it gets really practical. And he talks about uh, three relationships in chapter 5, verse 22 through 6, 9. He says, here's how to live this out in marriage. Here's how to live it out in your family with parents and children. Here's how to live it out in the workplace. And I don't know about you, I believe that the reason Paul lays out for us those specific relationships, because those can be the most difficult of our human relationships. Um, Maybe I can highlight this. Don't raise your hand because they might be sitting next to you. How many of you have a family member who is particularly difficult for you to get along with, and you've spent time with them during Thanksgiving? I'll raise my hand just for purposes of illustration. I'll raise my hand. Family can be difficult. Marriage can be difficult. My wife left the room so that I could say this. We had to have a sit down on the couch moment. Come and sit down. We are on the same team. 
We are not against each other. We'll make it through Thanksgiving because we're in this together. We had to have that conversation Monday or Tuesday, not you know Thursday night. Because life is difficult. Our closest relationships are difficult. And so I think if we are going to get what Paul says in the next section of Scripture, here's how to, his language isn't easy. He says, submit, sacrifice, obey in marriage, in family, in the workplace. If we're going to get that right, we have to live lives marked by the wisdom that he lays out in this morning's text. We won't be able to do that unless we have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. We're walking in the Spirit. We have this kind of wisdom. We have a handle on that. Then submit and obey and sacrifice and give in those important relationships. So that's where we're at. The the foundation and then the application and an important pivotal spot. So first, let's look um, at a sign of a heart that's given over to this kind of wisdom. The first sign of that is that our time is urgently surrendered to God. I think it's easy, at least for me, to have a confused perspective on time. I, I think there are two key um, traps that I fall into, and I think probably you do uh, as well. At least for myself, I seem to alternate between these two perspectives The first one is that I understand that my time is precious, but its preciousness leads me to become defensive when people want some of my time. Those could be people that I live close to, my family, those could be my coworkers, those could be um, the line at the post office, that could be uh, a long line wherever I'm sitting, that these are people who are taking a, a precious, finite resource away from me. And my defensiveness goes really high really quickly when you start to take some of my time away. That's a, a trap that I find myself falling into. And the next trap that I find myself falling into is like the opposite of that one, that I want to control all of my time. I don't want you to have any of it. And then I'll waste it. I look back on things that I spend time on and feel convicted. It. I know it's a precious resource, but look at how I've wasted it. And I can come to those conclusions in the exact same hour that I am angry and defensive because I had to spend so much time running an errand, and then I get it all back, and I let it fall away. Those are the two traps that I find myself falling into. So when Paul says, make the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. I believe that he's providing a a wise correction to the mistakes that we find ourselves slipping into when it comes to time. I think that what Paul means when he says this is that we each have opportunities to offer up our time before the Lord. And in each of these opportunities, we have a choice to, to get it right or to get it wrong and then try again next time and try again next time and try again next time. Uh, There's a popular book right now. It's a bestseller called 4,000 Weeks, and that refers to the number of weeks that an average person living in America has to live. I think that adds up to like 77-ish years. Now, I was sharing this with my dad, who is much older than I am, and he thought, oh, that makes me kind of nervous. Uh, I don't know that it matters, 
how old you are. Um, it could be that 4,000 weeks, if you are in a, your teenage years or if you're 20-something, 4,000 week, feel, that feels like a number that's huge and it's, uh, I, I can waste some time. Some of you are older than 77 and you're living on bonus time. Like, How did you get more than the 4,000? I don't know that it matters. I don't even know if it's a good book. I have it. I've started it. I don't know if it's really any good. I don't, I wouldn't, don't count that as a suggestion. Here's why I think uh, I bring it up. The title is helpful. If we only have 4,000 weeks, some of us have another 2,000 to live. Some of us have 200 to live. Maybe somebody has two weeks left. We don't know what we have been given. But to correct the, the problems that we have in how we deal with time, I think we have to understand that time, if it is a precious resource, it is like every other precious resource. That we bring what's precious to us, our time, our finances, even our, our physical bodies, and we offer them to God as a sacrifice. That when we bring our finances, our time, our bodies to God as a pleasing sacrifice because he is good and gracious and worthy of all of our worship, then every penny, every minute, every breath we recognize, he's given it to us in the first place. And like so much of, of God's economy, when we give to him, we get so much more than we really deserve that when we give him the offering of our time, then we receive a, a peace, a, a hope. Uh, we have a, a, a gift given by the Lord that far outweighs what we've given to him. It, it changes how we steward our time. I think that this is what is meant when Paul says, make the most of the time, redeem the time, make the most of every opportunity, not speed up, go faster, have a more um, refined to-do list. I don't, that, that's not what he means. I think he means bring your time as an offering, as a sacrifice to God, and see what God does with it. See the good that he will use when we bring our time before him. And that's the wise way to handle time. The second marker of walking in wisdom would be that we would desire to seek the Lord's will. Uh, Paul provides a great description of what it can look like for a person to understand the Lord's will in the first half of chapter 5. Right before these verses, earlier in chapter 5, Paul says, follow God's example. And I was sharing this with college students. At first, that seems kind of crazy. I don't know that I can follow the example of God, but that is his will for us, is that we would follow his example, that we would walk in love that we would care for other people. Paul says, live as children of the light, not of the darkness. Expose the darkness of sin is the way Paul describes it. Then he says, wake up. Don't live like you're kind of half asleep in this life. That's what the Lord's will is. I don't even know all of you, but I think I can say with confidence that this is God's will for you. You see, so often I hear the question from college students. I don't know that grown-ups ask this as much, but I think we think about it. What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for this decision that I need to make? I hear that from college students who are trying to decide, what is God's will as I select a major? What is God's will as I think about marriage? What is God's will 
as I think about which job to take, where I might move. As we age, maybe we're asking, what is God's will? Do I stay put? Do I move to a different community? Do I do do this or do I do that? When we think about what is God's will, there's nothing wrong with, with praying about those types of decisions. There's nothing at all wrong in asking for godly counsel when we have a choice to make. But when I think about asking what is God's will, the big storyline of, of what God is doing throughout human history, I don't know that he cares that much if we take one job or another, if we choose to be an English major or a biology major. One of the reasons when I, I say that, I think about King David. As a young man, David isn't praying, God, I have a choice to become a shepherd or become a farmer. Just spoiler alert, David becomes a shepherd. He's thinking, do I become a shepherd or do I become a farmer? If David had chosen to become a farmer, I don't think we would read in the Psalms where God would say, David, you chose poorly. You're outside of my will. You were supposed to be a shepherd and you chose to be a farmer. I don't think that that's the significant part of God's story as we interact with him. The the wisdom literature, all of the Psalms, the Proverbs, The wisdom literature of Scripture, I would summarize the whole section of Scripture this way. Pursue the wisdom of God. And it doesn't say that much about what God's will is for your life, but he says, look for wisdom. Pursue wisdom. Flee from sin. Run away from it. Don't let it be a part of your life. Devote your life to faithfulness. That is a theme of the wisdom literature. Love people around you. That seems to come up over and over again. Stay far away from the influence of foolish men. That's a key theme of the the Proverbs, certainly. And then work hard and provide for your family, provide for your friends. That might be all that you need to know is the Lord's will for your life. That might be just specific enough for you to live a life that pleases God and keeps you on the right track. So the text says, know the will of the Lord. So get busy following this instruction from Scripture, and I think you'll find yourself right in the middle of the Lord's will for your life. Third sign of of wisdom, we are surrendered to the Holy Spirit. This is a marker of God's wisdom in our lives, and we're surrendered to the Holy Spirit. The Greek word that's translated as filled in our text here, it shows up in several other places in the New Testament, And it can be helpful to understand what does Paul mean when he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, if we look at a few other places. So in Matthew 1.22, it says that the miraculous conception of Jesus that we're about to celebrate at Christmas, that this is a fulfillment, a filling up of Old Testament prophecy. So the Greek word that says be filled with the Holy Spirit says here's the fulfillment of prophecy. In Luke 2.40, It says that Jesus, as a young man, he grew in wisdom and stature and that he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. So that's the same Greek word. We can be filled with the Spirit. There's the fulfillment of prophecy. There's Jesus being filled with wisdom. In Ephesians chapter 3, just a couple of chapters before our text this morning, Paul says that his prayer for the Ephesian church is this. Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know his love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God. Same Greek word that says, I want you to have the knowledge, the power, the love, incomplete, and that you be filled up with it, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled, uh, fulfilled prophecy, filled with wisdom, filled with love, power, and knowledge of God. As I think about how we understand being filled with the Holy Spirit, I think there are two images, and um, you can tell I'm not prepared this morning, mostly because I've moved recently. I was trying to find my uh, visual illustration for this morning. It's buried in the junk that's still in my uh, unpacked garage, so you just have to imagine with me. Uh, I believe that being filled with the Holy Spirit is much less about coming into church in corporate worship with like an empty Holy Spirit tank, and we would expect that some part of that would be like a watering can. So I couldn't find my watering can. Sometimes we think that we come into this setting and God is supposed to take a watering can of the Holy Spirit and fill us up since we have run halfway empty. I think it's less about that and more that there are parts of our lives that are locked off to God's control. That if I had found the chains I was looking for in my garage, the chains and locks on parts of our hearts where we would say, this corner of my heart is locked off from you. Spirit of God. Remember, uh, we understand the Trinity as being the person of the Father, the person of Jesus, and the person of the Holy Spirit, not like the force in Star Wars, not um, something that's kind of nebulous and hard to understand, but a person of the Trinity. This part of my heart is blocked off from the person of the Holy Spirit, because I need to maintain control of it. I need to stay as the Lord of this part of my life. I'm ashamed of something that's here, and I don't want to expose that to the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that we take the the key to that lock and we undo it. We take a heavy chain that bars the door and we remove it, and we open up all of ourselves to be under the lordship of the Holy Spirit. I think that for me is a helpful way, a better way of understanding, adding to our understanding of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we would be willing to open every part of ourselves to his lordship and his control. Less watering can and more the removal of locks and chains. The fourth marker of worship that I want to turn your attention to is this marker of walking in wisdom as we desire to live lives of worship. If you look back at verse 19, verse 19 says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce describes a connection in this verse between the melody of the heart that accompanies uh, Uh, that uh, musical word that carries along with vocal singing. You know, it doesn't matter how we sing when we come together. You know that maybe if you sit next to me. It doesn't matter if we're on pitch or if we 
sing the right words, but what matters is the, the status of our heart. Are our hearts singing praise to God? If you've been around church for very long, you might have heard a little bit of some of the disagreements or debates or complaints about music in church. And if you haven't heard those, pretend that they don't exist maybe for a little bit longer. But if you've been around church for a while, you've heard kind of some, someone will grumble. We don't sing hymns anymore. Well, if you sing one hymn, someone younger will probably grumble. I wanted all of the praise choruses all morning long this morning. If you are of a certain age, perhaps you miss the sound of like a pipe organ. Um, I think I heard one of my kids one time say that a pipe organ reminds them of a funeral. I would prefer, you know, more electric guitar and drums. In church, we can have these debates about should we have a choir or should we have a, a small team? Here's what I think Paul would say. None of that matters. How we play the, the loudness or the quietness, if we're on pitch or not, the specific nature of the instruments that we play, none of that matters. What matters is are we able to sing a hymn, a song, a praise with one another that reflects a heart surrendered to the Lordship of God, that we are willing to, to put into voice that God is worthy of everything that we can say about him, all of the good that we can sing about him. He is worthy of all of it and more. So the specifics aren't really what matters, but do we take these psalms, hymns, and songs, do we take those with us throughout the week? Do you find yourself singing songs of God as you walk in to work, as you spend time with friends and family? If that's where our hearts are at, we're on the right path. We're, we're getting the wisdom of this scripture into our hearts. If we're doing more singing to our friends and family about the goodness of God and less complaining about exactly what it looks like. Moving on from there, a fifth marker of an attitude of wisdom is walking in wisdom has the desire to live lives of thanksgiving. When life is hectic and feels kind of out of control, I see an unhealthy part of my heart that's kind of exposed when life is overwhelming. Um, if I walk into my home and um, I see, I accuse my children regularly of leaving their dishes someplace other than the dishwasher or taking my coffee mug and leaving it in their car instead of where I can get it in the morning. Or I'll accuse my son of, taking off his soccer cleats and kind of chucking them across the room. Or There's nothing worse than sweaty soccer socks. Maybe you have uh, other parents would say there's some other sports-related grossness that your kids bring home. My son will chuck his sweaty soccer socks wherever he seems to think they're good to land. I, my, that exposes something in my heart, and I get frustrated and annoyed and have a bad perspective on um, my role in family. One of the things that helps me with that is it's a habit that I pick up and put down and pick back up again over and over again. And it's the, the discipline, the habit of writing in my journal phrases of gratitude for each of my children and my wife and my church that I will write down because the only, Annalie is my daughter, I am thankful, I am grateful for Annalie this morning because of this. 
And usually the Lord puts something on my heart that uh, the people that I love are more than the things that annoy me. They are beautiful. They are gifted. They are uh, a joy in my life. If I'm left to my own devices, I see my own failures, their failures, their messes. But the, the process of bringing gratitude into my life helps to change my perspective on that. Thanksgiving is more than the holiday that we just celebrated. I would argue that Thanksgiving, an attitude of appreciation, gratitude, is something that transforms the human heart. Maybe make it your practice to write in a little journal, in a piece of paper, in the back of your Bible, every day, something that you are grateful that God put into your life. Not something that you accomplished, not something that someone gave to you, but God alone gave me this today. And it might be something big, it might be something profound, and it might be something simple. Um, I have a, a hot cup of coffee today, and I enjoy it. Thank you, God, for making my mouth, my taste buds such that you, I can appreciate a cup of coffee. I appreciate that the sun has come up again today. There's no reason that it had to but it's a gift to us. Every day, something that you appreciate, a gift from the Lord. Fifth marker of walking in wisdom would be, or the sixth one, sorry, the fifth one would be this attitude of thanksgiving. The sixth one, the final one, that we would submit to godly mentors. That's a sign that we are walking in wisdom and desire to live a life in line with this passage of scripture. I'm afraid I know far too many Christians who live with an attitude that they will only submit their lives to uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And no one else needs to have a role of authority or submission in their lives. I know a handful of folks who have had that perspective and, and have articulated that to me. Here's the problem. If you don't know what submission looks like in this life, I'm afraid you will miss it in eternal life. Paul's instruction perhaps I should say, command to us, is that we learn how to submit our lives to wise and godly counselors again and again and again. I would make the case that this is a command. Now, some of you, if you're really sharp, I, have the, I was reading from the New International Version this morning. Um, different Bibles will break the paragraph in different places. The newer version of the New International Version places verse 21 in a whole different section. So I just want to say up front, I've moved it up into the earlier section on purpose so that I can preach about it this morning. Because for whatever reason, God has put it on my agenda to put before you. It goes better with this section about marriage and family and work but I want you to hear it. Maybe it's like, you can read at lunch, read the next section, it goes better there. But here's the command for us, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I have learned more than I could ever measure from godly mentors that I have submitted my life to their instruction. My ministry to college students I have been the director of Christian Challenge for 18 years now. So for about a decade, long before Garen was the pastor of our church, he was a mentor of mine, and he was um, 
maybe informally invited to speak words of counsel into how I was investing in the lives of college students. And I am a better minister today because of that submission. I think my marriage is stronger because Scott Waters and I will regularly get together and Scott will have a question about theology or the Bible or politics or sports and I'll have a, a question about how do I lead or how do I guide students. We usually end with, how is your wife? There's an unspoken submission in my life that Scott has the freedom to speak into my life and ask, am I leading my family the way I ought to be? I think you have to be willing to sit down face-to-face with wise and godly men or women who would speak wisdom into your life, and they have the room to do that. They have the permission to do that. And if we're not willing to live that way with each other, if we're not willing to live that way in our church, we will miss having lives submitted to the Savior because we don't know what the practice even looks like. But if that's our habit, we will be prepared, positioned to hear from God's word, to hear the Holy Spirit speak into our lives. Here's where you need correction. You're out of bounds here. Submit your life to me and come back into right standing. That our submission to one another prepares us to hear from God's word and from the Savior. I think starting this kind of practice can be simply sitting down with a person that you know this person has demonstrated a faithful relationship with Jesus, and they might have wisdom to speak into my life. Sitting down over lunch or a cup of coffee and saying, I want to invite you to speak into my life. I want to invite you to tell me, what do you really see when you look into my life? And then respond accordingly. I think that's as easy to start that way, that you'd be willing to listen. Last thing I want to share with you, many of you know um, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, that speaks about wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. These marks of wisdom, some of them are easy for you, perhaps. Some of them are, are likely very difficult. But these, if they're put into very real life practice, are a practical way to begin stopping the practice of leaning on your own understanding and more submitting to the way of Jesus. If we're willing to make these commitments, I believe that our good and gracious Savior will be pleased to make our path a little bit straighter. I want to pray this for us, and then we'll be done. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you give us so much wisdom in your word, that we can come to your word day after day after day, and never get to the bottom of the wisdom that you have laid out for us. Father, I pray that you would show us how to be obedient to reading your word and putting its wisdom into practice in our daily lives starting tomorrow. That when we go back into work, when we spend time with family, that when we interact with our spouses, our children, our coworkers, that you would give us a taste of the wisdom that you desire for our hearts. Father, I pray that you would, um, when you've laid wisdom before us, that we would be obedient to put some of this into practice. If there's someone here this morning who has a a sense of your work, uh, a plucking of the heart, uh, a desire, a need for change, that you would make them obedient to put this into practice. Father, I pray that 
our pursuit of this kind of wisdom from your word would transform our families, would transform our church, would change the community that we live in. Thank you for your guidance and your counsel in this way. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. Hope you've had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Let's put this into practice as we go off to, to church and school and activities tomorrow.